1974. It was the worst year of my life. I was 11 years old. Uh, it was the year that my parents finally split up. It was the year that my mum's new boyfriend moved in and threatened to use his belt on me. It was the year that I started high school and was bullied relentlessly. Uh, it was an all boys school and for whatever reason, this one boy had it in for me and would rally the whole class to taunt me. I mean, I can remember in between lessons when there was no teacher present, he would lead the, the class in singing songs, mocking songs where they changed the words to make fun of me. You know, kids can be so cruel at that age, can't they? He eventually went too far and uh, they turned against him because, well, crowds are fickle like that. But those were tough days. I dreaded going to school, but then my home life wasn't great either. And yet, as I look back, I know that God was with me, watching over me. The only boy who didn't join in with the taunting was the boy I sat next to in class that whole year. His name was Daniel Verwo. He was American and a Christian. His family had relocated to London to be closer to the mission field where his father was ministering. His dad's name was George Verwa, and he had an organization called Operation Mobilization. I would sometimes go to their house after school. It was a refuge. And you can bet your bottom dollar they were praying for me. I've got no doubt. Praying for me in my broken home. Praying for me when I was persecuted at school. Praying for my salvation. God put them in my life for 1974. And whatever the enemy intended for me that year, I've got no doubt. Prayers were offered for me in response, and there were seeds sown that year that later came to fruition as God answered those prayers. Whatever the plans the enemy had to mess me up, they did not prevail. Now, I know some of you listening have experienced far worse than me. I know because I've heard some of your stories. Stories of persecution and abuse. Stories of addiction and oppression. But you have not been defeated. You are here listening to this message today. And before I go any further, let me just say, if you are currently in a situation where you don't feel safe, perhaps uh, an abusive relationship, please seek help immediately. I'll give you a couple of hotlines you can call at the end. But how should we view the things that we've suffered in the past? What should our response be? Uh, where do we go for healing? Let's just join with the psalmist in Psalm 129 as he considers his oppressors. Psalm 129, a song of ascents. From my earliest youth, my enemies have persecuted me. Let all Israel repeat this. From my earliest youth, my enemies have persecuted me, but they have never defeated me. My back is covered with cuts as if a farmer had plowed long furrows. But the Lord is good. He has cut me free from the ropes of the ungodly. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shameful defeat. May they be as useless as grass on a rooftop, turning yellow when only half grown, ignored by the harvester, despised by the binder. And may those who pass by refuse to give them this blessing. The Lord bless you. We bless you in the Lord's name. This psalm is a song, a song of oppression. And in the first two verses, the psalmist is calling God's people to sing with him. And the song they're singing is called, From my earliest youth, my enemies have persecuted me. Come on, sing with me, he's saying, this is your song too. From my earliest youth, my enemies have persecuted me. 
Now, what enemies is he talking about? Well, Israel in their earliest youth, when they were still very young as a people, were living in Egypt. And if you know the story of Exodus, you'll know that the Egyptians turned against them and enslaved them. The psalmist says, my enemies have persecuted me. Other translations say oppressed or afflicted. But the Hebrew word literally means to be bound up or tied up, which suggests a form of slavery. What's more, he uses a very vivid imagery. In verse 3, he talks about a farmer or plowman plowing furrows into his back. My back is covered with cuts, he says. And we know from Exodus 1.11, it says the Egyptians appointed taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And it says they were beaten, presumably with whips. So it's not hard to imagine the cuts on their backs. But God heard their cries and rescued them. They were persecuted, but not destroyed. They were oppressed, but not overcome. Downtrodden, but not defeated. My enemies have not defeated me, says the psalmist at the end of verse 2. They have not prevailed against me. How come? Because as he says in verse 4, the Lord is good. He's cut me free from the ropes of the ungodly. They were liberated from the ropes that bound them as slaves. The ropes of the oxen that dragged the plow across their backs were cut. But it's the Lord who did it. He has cut me free, says the psalmist. The Lord is good. Rather, translations say the Lord is righteous. It means he is just. He is loyal. He's loyal to his people. He keeps his promises. He said to Abraham in Genesis 12:3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who dishonors you. And we see that happening throughout the history of Abraham's descendants. The psalmist says, from my earliest youth, so from his youth onwards, he says, my enemies have persecuted me, but have never defeated me. And of course, that includes the Babylonians who destroyed their city, but God preserved his people. In spite of Israel's failings and sin against God, he still preserved a remnant who were carried off into exile. It's because the Lord is just and faithful to keep his promises. He will not abandon his people, even in spite of their unfaithfulness. He preserved them while the Babylonians are no more. And then came the Persians. And we know from the book of Esther how the evil Haman plotted to commit genocide against the Jews who were living in exile. But in the providence of God, the plan was discovered. And it wasn't the Jewish people who were destroyed. It was Haman. Any plans to put down God's people cannot ultimately prevail. After many years, God brought his people back to their homeland. And it's believed that the Psalms of Ascent were put together to kind of celebrate that journey. And songs like Psalm 129 have continued to be relevant because of the persecution and oppression that they have experienced at the hands of many nations, where they've been hated, slandered, expelled and murdered. And yet still the enemy has not prevailed. As Derek Kidner says in his commentary on Psalm 129, Whereas most nations tend to look back on what they've achieved, Israel reflects here in what she has survived. And when all things are considered, it really is a miracle that the Jewish people have survived so much. And that can only be put down to God's preservation. But of course, the same is true for us too. We are sons and daughters of Abraham through our faith in Jesus Christ. And all who belong to Jesus will be persecuted in this world, the Bible says, just as he was. 
You know, we have an enemy who wants to destroy the church. And it's been that way since the earliest days of Christianity, from our earliest youth, when the authorities tried to silence the songs of those first believers. They flogged them, dragged them off to prison, stoned them to death, fed them to lions, burned them alive. I mean, it really is a miracle that the early church survived. But no matter how much the darkness tried to snuff out their light, the light just grew brighter. The church grew as it's done throughout history. And even today, in so many parts of the world, you know, Christians are oppressed and persecuted. We just don't hear so much about it in the news. But in Nigeria, for example, Christians are killed on a regular basis. Just a couple of weeks ago, worshippers were attacked in two churches. Three people were killed. 30 were kidnapped. Just two weeks before that, on Pentecost Sunday, 40 people were murdered in another attack on the church. And there had already been 900 Christians killed for their faith in Nigeria in the first three months of this year. Thankfully, we don't face that kind of persecution here in America. But that's not to say it will always be this way. And anyway, we have an enemy who employs multiple schemes and devices to cripple the church, not just from without, but also from within, as he seeks to damage and dilute our witness. But it's not just the church corporately that he seeks to attack. It's also you and me personally. He is the enemy of our souls. You know, more and more we hear stories of uh, addiction and abuse, anxiety and depression, uh, mental health disorders, broken relationships and broken lives. People who feel trapped. And that might be because of their own actions or the actions of others. Or maybe you can identify with the psalmist here where he talks about the plowman making stripes on his back and being bound by the ropes of the ungodly. I mean, we'd use different terminology, wouldn't we? Like uh, people walking all over us where we feel manipulated or mistreated. But we need to listen to the psalmist that the enemy will not defeat us individually or corporately because God is just. He remains faithful to the end, even when we fail, even when it's our own fault, our own sin that's leads us into suffering. He is loyal and keeps his promises. He will not abandon you. He will never leave you. He is with you and he will not allow the enemy to prevail over you. If you are looking to Jesus today, you will never be defeated. Let me say that again. You will never be defeated. Romans 8 tells us that. Paul wrote, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or distress or persecution? Shall danger or death? No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, says Paul, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our, our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell or anything in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is good. Because Jesus triumphed over Satan's sin and death, so will we. The outcome is certain. Listen, the enemy wants you to think that you can't win. The truth is, you can't lose. But what do we do about our oppressors and the wounds we carry from their actions and words? And let me just say again, if you're currently in a situation where you don't feel safe, or where you're suffering from some addiction or abuse, please seek help immediately. But you know, many of us carry wounds from the past where people have hurt us. And to quote Bible teacher Beth Moore, if we don't allow God to heal our hearts, minds and habits, we'll either continue to allow people to walk all over us 
or we'll become people who walk all over them. So often it's the abused who becomes the abuser, the oppressed becomes the oppressor, and so the cycle continues. How can we break that cycle? How did the psalmist deal with it? Let's take a look. In the second half of the psalm, he says, May all who hate Zion, all who hate God's people, be turned back in shameful defeats, right? May they be put to shame, he says. May they be as useless as grass on a rooftop, turning yellow when only half grown, ignored by the harvester and despised by the binder. And may those who pass by refuse to give them this blessing. The Lord bless you. We bless you in the Lord's name. In other words, he's saying, let them be cursed. Now, I'm sure some of you will be thinking, well, hang on. Didn't Jesus say we should love our enemies? Pray for those who persecute us? Bless those who seek to harm us? Is this just an Old Testament response that we should now ignore? Well, even in the Old Testament, God's people were instructed to not be vengeful or harbor a grudge. That if they came across their enemy's ox that had strayed, they should bring it back to him. And as it says in Proverbs 24, 17, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. So, how do we account for the psalmist cursing his enemies, and what are we to do with those verses? As Eugene Peterson said, there is no literature in all the world that is more true to life and more honest than Psalms. For here, we have warts and all religion. What we have in Psalm 129 is honest emotion being poured out before God. And where else, you see, can we take that emotion, you know, the anger, the rage we may be feeling? You know, if we don't express it somewhere, either we'll suppress it in unhealthy ways or take it out on others. And maybe you know something about that. As God's children, we can take our feelings to God knowing that he is for us and that he won't judge us. And so we can be honest with him about our feelings, how we feel about someone who has hurt us. And being able to express those feelings is part of that healing process. Or as one commentary put it, sometimes God lets his children blow off some steam. Right? It's like a safety valve on a boiler. It allows pressure to be relieved because otherwise, if left uncontrolled, it would just build up and cause damage. The Psalms invite us to let off steam, to be honest with God about how we feel. And as we do, God begins to work in our hearts. You see, it's more about being heard than having our requests answered. Sometimes we just need to be heard. And God is a wonderful listener, a wonderful counselor a gracious healer, and that healing is a process where we can come to a place of forgiveness and where we can leave the oppressor to God, where we leave the outcome in his hands. Some of you have heard the story I told about a woman called Elizabeth, who had a lovely family, loving husband and kids, all Christians, but one day the unthinkable happened. She was raped. They caught the man and he was convicted and put in prison, but it left her traumatized. She was angry with God, bitter towards the man, and she spiraled into this severe depression and it nearly cost her her marriage and family. She even attempted to take her own life. And in spite of taking Valium and receiving counseling, she felt tormented and it wasn't even her fault, right? He was the one who should be tormented. And even though she was in prison, it felt like she was in prison too and she couldn't get free. And then a Christian friend told her, the only way through this is to forgive that man who had done this to her and hand him over to God. 
How can I forgive him for what he's done? He's ruined my life. He's ruined my family. I can't forgive him, she said. But her friend persuaded her to look to God for grace. So through many tears over several weeks, she vented to God, expressing her anger and her sorrow to him. And then she was able to ask God for his help. She didn't feel any different at first, but one day after a period of time, Elizabeth felt that she might be able to write to the man in prison to tell him that she'd forgiven him for what he'd done. And that led to some correspondence whereby she found out that in his past, he himself had been abused. And so the abused had become an abuser and the cycle of destruction had continued. So she began to pray for him, prayed for his salvation, and even came to a place where she felt she could face him. And so one day she visited him in prison. And the result of her forgiveness and showing her abuser such love and grace was that he became a Christian too. It was through this process that Elizabeth experienced healing in her own life and she set up a ministry where she'd go and share her story to groups of women to offer the hope of healing to others who had been abused. Then one day, the man who had raped her came up for parole and got released from prison. And do you know what happened? Elizabeth invited him to join her in her ministry. True story. I mean, what a remarkable story of redemption. You can just imagine the impact when she would tell her story and then introduce the man who raped her. Both were set free from the bonds of the enemy. Now, of course, not every story ends like that, I know. Not every oppressor comes to repentance. And sometimes it feels like the wicked just get away with it. We have to hand it over to God. The injustice, the hurt, the unanswered questions. We have to let God deal with the oppressor. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord is righteous. He is just, says the psalmist. Anyone who opposes God's people opposes God himself. Right? And where there is no repentance, they will be cursed. They will wither like the grass that grows on the rooftop. But for those who trust in the Lord, there will be healing. The enemy cannot win. He cannot defeat you because Jesus already overcame him through the cross. And it's by his stripes that we are healed. And that's where I see the psalmist pointing us. Like so many of these psalms, he's pointing us to Jesus. He says, my back is covered with cuts like the furrows from a plow. You see, what does that image remind you of? In all four Gospels, we're told that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. We're not given a description, but everyone knew what that meant in Roman times. How they used whips with leather thongs and there would have been pieces of bone tied at intervals designed to cut the flesh on your back to ribbons, like a plowman plowing furrows. And yet we know that Jesus was willing to go that through that for us. As it says in Isaiah 53, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And of course, we know that Jesus was God in the flesh. God stepped down to take our place, to suffer with us and to suffer for us. But he says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds or by his stripes, we are healed. Jesus bore our suffering so that we might receive healing. And that's how we know he cares, that he's not indifferent to our pain, because we have a God who knows what it is to suffer. He himself suffered with us, but he didn't just suffer with us, 
he also suffered for us. He bore our suffering so that we could be healed spiritually, emotionally, and physically. That is available for you today through Jesus Christ. It's by his stripes that you can experience healing and freedom. And because Jesus, having suffered at the hands of his oppressors, overcame them as he was raised from the dead, so we can know that there is a day coming when that will be true for us as well. When Jesus returns, there'll be no more suffering, no more injustice, no more sickness, no more pain. And in his presence, will experience unimaginable joy and eternal peace. But like the grass that withers, our oppressors will be no more.